Amen. Our reading from God's Holy Word this morning comes from Mark, the 12th chapter. We will pick up the reading in verse 38, and we will continue to verse 44. Please give attention to the reading of God's Holy Word. And in his teaching, he said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive greater condemnation. And he sat down opposite the treasury and he watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums, and a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. You may be seated. Father in heaven, we pray now that as we consider this, your word from Mark chapter 12, that you would give us eyes to see that this text of Scripture would be more than just read by we who are here and listened to, but that this text would read us. This text would reveal within us the things that lie underneath the surface, that it would drive us to consider our hearts before your presence, and that in so doing, it would cause us to give our hearts afresh and renewed unto you in full commitment, endeavoring to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. Father, we would ask now that you would send your spirit who we know is with us, that he would do work, business in the heart of every soul here, that he would lift up high the face of the Lord Jesus Christ in our minds and our hearts. And that he would cause us and strengthen us in will to find Jesus' words here both a comfort and a challenge. And in that comfort, let us rest. And in that challenge, let us take it up to obey. Lord, hear this prayer. And now, according to your will, answer it. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you're visiting with us this morning or have just been with us maybe once or twice or a few times before and haven't been a part of this ongoing series in the Gospel of Mark, I just want to make it clear even before we get into the text this morning that it is not our tradition here at Cornerstone for me to just simply cherry pick certain passages that I want to speak on, certain hobby horses that I want to get on in order to speak. It is our tradition to work our way through books of the Bible for the purposes to hear the whole counsel of the Word of God. 
uh, that we would be attentive to all of what the Lord wants us to say, even and maybe especially the things that we wouldn't naturally be inclined to hear. Such is the case, I think, with the text that is before us, a well-worn text. I would imagine many of you in this room have, have can go back to Sunday school days having heard of the widow's might or the widow's offering and, and remember maybe with some fondness, maybe even with something of nostalgia, uh, this particular text of Scripture. Oh, how sweet it is that this woman is great and a great example of giving for us. But when you really look at this text, especially in its context, those preceding words that we read a second ago regarding the scribes, we see that Jesus here is in the holiest and most uh, gracious sense imaginable, meddling, meddling with our hearts and our lives personally, seeking to get underneath what it is we do to the why we do it. What's the driver, in other words, for our acts of devotion? Why is it that we're here this morning? Why is it that we've committed ourselves to a church, to people? Why would we give? Why would we use our resources, our time, and our energy, and our possessions for the purposes of His kingdom? It's not just the what but the why that Jesus is really after in this text. And he does it by using this, we might say, study in contrast between the scribes and between this poor widow. Now, it's interesting when you look back over the Gospel of Mark, especially in the last few chapters that we've spent time in, it's clear that there's something of a monetary theme that Mark has developed Going back to chapter 10, you might remember in verse 17 that very famous story of the rich young ruler. Uh, This young man who's come to Jesus, eager to inherit eternal life, and he asked that very question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And we find at the end of that text that this young man walks away sorrowful, and the text tells us why. For he owned many possessions. Jesus had challenged him. To give up the idol of his heart and of his life, the idol of riches. To lay everything at the feet of the poor. To give away all that is his and then to come follow Jesus. And this was just a bridge too far for the rich young ruler. In the next chapter though, we see Jesus entering the temple. And do you remember when he first enters the temple after Palm Sunday, what it is that happens? Well, he runs off the money changers. It seems as if the religious leaders, the Sadducees, who oversaw the mercantilism regarding the selling of sacrifices and animals in the temple, had moved in to the court of the Gentiles and had elbowed out the nations from being able to worship the Lord. Why? Because they longed for a prophet more than they longed for the nations to pray. And then at the opening of chapter 12 here in Mark, we see the story, the well-known story of paying taxes to Caesar. The trap that the religious leaders seek to put Jesus in. Should we pay tribute to Caesar or to God? And a coin 
much like the coins in the text before us, become the center stage of that opening story in chapter 12 of the Gospel of Mark. But in that case, a denarii became the center stage and the image of the Caesar on that coin as Jesus routed the trap of the religious leaders, saying, Give unto Caesar the things which are Caesar's, and give unto God the things which are God's. Now, I don't think if I had probably spelled that out over the last couple of chapters, this theme of money, it would have been uh, evident to you that Jesus is not so much changing gears as he is building on what has come before. He is teaching us a critical principle that he is always teaching throughout the gospel. And that is that where your heart is, there your treasure is also. That's the point of this text. And he wants to push in upon our hearts to ask us the real question, what is the real treasure of your life? Not the stated treasure, not the catechism professed answer, not the Sunday school right answer, you understand. No, the heart level real answer. What is the treasure of your life? And in order to press into his own disciples here and to the, to the crowds who were around, he gives us what I've referred to already as a study in contrast. Using the scribe and the widow as, well, as opposites, exemplars, one showing us what it means to live for ourselves and the other showing us what it means to live for God. I really want to look at this text under those two headings. The first, the first, a caution, what it means to live for ourselves. And the second, a commendation, what it means to live for God. That's what we really see in this text. A caution, what it means to live for ourselves. And then a commendation, what does it mean to live for God. We see this first point in this first section in Mark chapter 12, verses 45 to 47. Notice it with me. And in the hearing of all the people, he, that's Jesus, said to his disciples, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplace and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. Now when you hear the word beware, or, or watch out, you instinctively have a heightened sense of awareness, don't you? A carefulness sort of takes over our posture, doesn't it? When someone says, beware, watch out. Our conduct begins to slow down and our manner begins to be more attentive, more closely attuned to what it is that's going on around us. This happened to me recently. I was working outside and one of my, well, one of my kind neighbors, always watching out for my health, came around and, and said, Nate, be careful. Keep your eyes open. Snakes have been found in that area over there. And, and you know, I immediately sort of, you know, right, wasn't looking much at the ground at that particular moment, then started to uh, when they mentioned that. And when they said, you know, keep your eyes open, keep your, keep your eyes peeled, they, of course, weren't, say, weren't saying, why are you walking around with your eyes closed? I wasn't walking around with my eyes closed. Of course, I had my eyes open. But they were saying there's different levels of attentiveness. 
Even with those of us who are walking with our eyes open through the world. I want you to beware. I want you to slow down and really pay attention here. Watch out and be on guard. That's what Jesus is saying. You've had this experience when that strange noise happens in the middle of the night in your house and you can't place where it is it's come from. Now, because I have, well, young children in my house, I have noises in my house all, all the time. And, and, and Christy will tell you, even last night we had a, no, a noise that happened. And, and it is instinctive for Nate, when I hear a noise at night, I fly out of the bed in total panic. And, 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 it, and, then, and normally she goes, it's okay, it's all right, it's Lila, you know, it's... You know, it's, you know, someone has walked down the staircase, uh, likely not a burglar, probably one of our children with a nightmare or something, right? She tries to calm me down, but that initial kind of bump in the night causes us to have a heightened of attention, a, a listening instinctively, right? But for some of us, you, gra- you know, you, you grab the bathroom plunger and you're walking around the house and you're, you're thinking to yourself, I'm going to lay into this criminal, whoever it is, who's come to rob my home, Right? That's what happens when we are called to beware or be on guard. Jesus is, in a sense, doing something here. He's actually actually saying this to the crowd around and and the disciples. And he's saying, I want you to beware. I want you to be on guard. Now, what's surprising about his, his caution here is to whom it refers. It's not a criminal. It's not a burglar. It's religious leaders, scribes. Now, this is bewildering when we first just read it, just cold from Mark chapter 12. Why would he be saying, be on guard against uh, religious types and leaders? But it becomes crystal clear in inspection. In fact, if you've been with us over the last few weeks, you know that the religious leaders, the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, they've been after Jesus intending to destroy him. They have over and over through deception and deep darkness tried to capture him, tried to snuff out that which is true and right and good. They have wandered into grievous error and they have displayed in their character the exact opposite of what they are often called to be in the scriptures and that is shepherds of the flock of God. In fact, I think Jesus gives us here Three characteristics of these religious leaders who, if I can put it this way, are self-idolaters, who are ensnared in man-made religion, who have no vision of what the grace and the goodness of God really is, has no heart really drawn to Him. They're really completely focused on themselves. Self-idolatry is here. How do we know if we have been ensnared in self-idolatry? How do we know if we're trapped in a kind of man-made religion? Well, I want to give you three characteristics I think Jesus gives us here in the text. Number one is this. They are obsessed with recognition. Jesus says the scribes are known for their long flowing robes and their desire to have greetings in the marketplace. These are... These are leaders who, who just want to be seen for their regalia, 
who, who love when, when they turn the, the, the heads of those in the community because of their long flowing robes. They've dressed to impress, so to speak. They've wore, in our nomenclature, the power suit. Uh, they have smelt, as it were, like money and prestige and status. And they love it when people acknowledge them, recognize them. They want to be a so-called household name. They've built their identity over the fact that they are recognized in the community. They are known. They are popular. They're obsessed with recognition. Notice the contrast from what they should be. Instead of being attentive to the people of God and drawing the people of God's attention unto God, that's what a shepherd should do, they drew people's attention to themselves. Instead of lifting up people through the welcome of God, given in the grace of God, they want to be lifted up themselves through people's greeting of them. They're obsessed with recognition. But I want you to see, secondly, their self-idolatry is known in their desire, we might say their craven desire, for power and status. Jesus says it this way, they seek the best seats in the synagogue and the places of honor at the feast. Now in the ancient Near East, where you sat at the event said everything there needed to know about you. Were you at the head of the table? Were you on the 50-yard line? Were you on the front seat of, of the concert with backstage passes? That said everything about you. We knew what status you were in. We knew how much money you had. We knew what kind of power you were because you were one of those who sat in the seat of honor. You're one who had the best seat in the synagogue. The, the, the religious leaders were those who sought out these seats, maneuvered to get these seats, wanted to occupy these seats. They wanted people to know by their presentation in public settings that they had arrived they were a people who were obsessed with recognition. They were a people who had craven desire for power and status. And notice how contrasted this is from the shepherds they were supposed to be. Instead of putting others in the places of honor and blessing, isn't that what we should do? That the last will be first and the first will be last? They maneuvered in such a way as to push people to the margins so that they could have their rightful place at the party. They were hungry for power and status. But I want you to see thirdly, there's something underneath all of that. And thirdly, what we see is that they were eaten up with hypocrisy. They were eaten up with hypocrisy. Notice what Jesus says in verse 40. They devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. Isn't it interesting that James, the, the brother of, of Jesus, tells us that the very heart of a true religion is that we care for widows and orphans in need. That's what he says. Notice they do the opposite. If the keeping of the commands is loving your neighbor as yourself, this is the keeping of man-made religion. It's leeching from your neighbor all you can get from him or her. That's what we see here. Notice they pray long and flowery prayers so that... Others can be impressed with their devotion. Oh, he or she, they're so close to God. They, 
they can, they can pray so long, they seem to always have the vocabulary of what needs to be spoken. But the fact is there wasn't love there. There wasn't devotion to God there. There was simply a desire that they would be recognized. Isn't there, isn't there something that's really grotesque in this? That they use ministry to God as a way to minister to themselves. And they, they look like they're serving others. And they're in the position that's called to serve others and to give devotion to God. But all of it's just a back door to really get something for themselves. They're literally worshiping and serving themselves in the midst of looking like they're worshiping God and serving others. It's all a guise. It's a religious charade. And it's why Mark tells us that for them there is a greater condemnation. I love what J.C. Ryle said here, not because it's easy to read, but because it's true. He says, let us be real and honest, thorough and sincere in our Christianity. We cannot deceive an all-seeing God. We may take in poor, short-sighted many by our little talk and affectation of devotedness, but God is not mocked. He is the discerner of thoughts and the intents of the heart. His all-seeing eye pierces through the paint and the varnish and the tinsel, and it gets to the unsoundness of our inner man. The day of judgment will soon be here, and as Job tells us, the joy of the hypocrite is but for a moment. His end will be everlasting contempt. This is the caution that Jesus gives. This is what actually worshiping ourselves and serving ourselves and making ourselves to be the center of even our religious activity really looks like. And well, there is of course a difference, isn't there, between the hardened hypocrisy of the religious leaders where they didn't even see it and were completely unaware of the way in which they were actually separate from God in their devotion to God. There's a difference between a kind of hardened hypocrisy and a true believer who struggles with being a hypocrite. I will be honest with you, I feel this every single week in some way, shape, or form. I, after all, am actually the bad guy in this passage. I'm the religious leader. I'm the scribe, so to speak. I'm the Pharisee in this text, the religious leaders. I'm the kind of people you should be aware of. And it's often the challenge in the midst of ministry, even as we go to do something good and serve, is that we get caught up thinking about ourselves. We get caught up thinking this is about us. Guilty as charged. We said last week, even in our confession of sin, that every time that we go to do good, we find that evil is right there with me. Well, don't you find that every time you go to do good, even when it's charitable, even when it's mercy, even when it's care, something on the back end, and even in the midst of it, you start listening to your own heart say something like, you really are an awesome person, aren't you? Oh, I hope they see what good I have done for them. And secretly, I hope they return it. How many of us, if we're honest with our consciences, we battle here? The problem is between the hypocrite and the person who struggles with hypocrisy is the hypocrite doesn't grieve that about themselves. They're unaware of it. They don't even confess it. 
the hardened hypocrite, that is their operating procedure, that is their MO, that is the way they get by. They are constantly in the midst of their quote-unquote service to God actually serving themselves. And Jesus warns us here that this kind of self-centeredness, this kind of idolatry, when it gets into your soul, well, I guess it, we could say that it operates something like, something like carbon monoxide, a poison that we breathe in, that we don't, we don't smell, we don't necessarily sense, but before we know it, it's bringing our souls down to the grave. Jesus is giving us a caution here, and who among us shouldn't hear that caution? But he doesn't leave us there. Notice what he gives us secondly. He gives us a commendation. He says, I want you to be able to spot the counterfeit. That's why I've given you a caution. But now I want to look at that which is authentic, that which is true religion. I want to commend to you what living for God actually looks like. And notice that Mark here moves from this caution regarding self-centeredness to this beautiful exhibition of what we could only call sacrifice. Notice Jesus turns his, away, his eyes away from the disciples. He has a seat across from the temple. He's got a shot at the treasury. The treasury was in the court of the women in the temple. There were actually 13 different, quote-unquote, offering boxes. They weren't boxes. They actually looked like little trumpets, little brass trumpets of which you put your, your money into. And this is Passover. Let's remember the context. There are thousands and thousands of people flooding into Jerusalem. Many have stockpiled their giving till this moment where they come to Jerusalem to give. There was no credit cards. There was no PayPal. When you showed up at the temple, you brought everything for your offerings. And many of these people lived far away. So not surprisingly, Jesus here spots many who are rich dumping uh, so many riches, silver, gold, shekels, denarii, with loud clangs into the brass trumpets. That's what they looked like. And they gave to the Lord out of their abundance. We, we might even say they gave faithfully to the Lord, meaning to say that they paid attention to the tithe. They paid attention to the offerings. They, they percentaged out their, their salaries and uh, their resources. And they gave even appropriately, maybe even above, what it is that they were expected of them. They gave out of their abundance. But Jesus here doesn't zero in on them as loud as the clang would have been with their coins going in. Instead, he zeroes his attention on this poor widow who has these two copper coins. Now, the Greek word for the coins is the word lepta. It's a word that literally means thin or, or, or very fine. It's actually speaking to the smallness of the value of the coin. It, there wasn't much to it. It wasn't thick. It wasn't large. It was thin. In fact, if we were to, to, to market it according to the day's value, it, each lepta would be roughly uh, estimated about one-eighth of a penny. So, so this woman has two-eighths uh, of a penny that she's bringing to the Lord. Uh, now listen, I'm guilty of this. When I see a, a penny uh, today, uh, which you don't see them as much as you used to, but when you see a penny uh, today and, and you're walking on the sidewalk and you see it there, and it's, say it's been there. Say you've walked by it two or three days uh, in a row. You're not sure if it's worth bending down for. 
That's why it sat there so long. Alepta is less than that. And it's here where Jesus extends the focus. He draws his attention to her gift. Isn't it really interesting in the, in the text? It says in verse 43, And he called his disciples to him. They, they are off somewhere. And as he watches this take place, he goes, Hey guys, hey guys, teaching moment. I want to instruct you on this. I want you, I want you to hear this. In fact, before, before that widow gets out of eye shot, I, I want you to see her because I've got something to tell you about her. And Jesus says that the greatness of the gift of this woman's two coins, if we can summarize it this way, is measured not by the amount that she gave, but by the amount that she sacrificed. That's different. That the value of the gift that she gave was not the amount that she gave. We, we all know that she gave less than probably anybody that day in the temple. But its value was of such greatness because of the measure of her sacrifice in giving it. For this woman, Jesus tells us, gave out of her poverty. To put it in one way, she gave out of what she did not have to give. Out of that she gave. That which she actually relied on for survival, she gave it. She gave out of her poverty. We could, we could say that she's taking bread out of her own mouth as she puts the two lepta into the temple treasury. The text is quite clear. She put in all that she had. Notice she had all that she had to live on. The word there is actually quite interesting. It could be rendered a couple of different ways. Different translations actually do render it different ways. It's the Greek word bios from where we get the word biology. And he says, she gave, as it were, all her livelihood, or we could say, she gave all of her life. She gave all of her life to the treasury. If we were to strip out the pronouns and get it down to just that vocabulary, she gave all of her life, or she gave all of her livelihood, as we speak of it. Now, I think one of the questions that we should really be asking ourselves is, of course, how do we, how is it that we give? How does your giving look compared to this woman in this text? Have you ever given away your lunch money in order to give it to the work of the Lord? That's the question of this text. Have you ever canceled a vacation in order to give to the Lord? Have you ever sold lands and properties in order to give to the Lord? You see, that was what the early church was doing. I'm not just picking that out of thin air, you understand. In Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47, we're told that when the Holy Spirit fell upon the people of God and they heard the apostles' teaching and they met together praying the prayers and breaking bread together in fellowship, that when there were needs in their communities, people actually sold their very goods to meet the needs of others. She, out of her poverty, 
put in all that she had. I've gone back and forth on this, this text, mainly because I wanted to say something different. As I look at it and I stare at it and I think to myself, surely he means something different than he means. And the, the, the challenge of this text is that it's actually quite clear. Sometimes texts are really hard because they're not easy to understand. Other texts are hard because they're really easy to understand. This is the latter. I, I think to myself, and I, I don't know, you know, again, God's providence in all of these things, the widow comes and she has two lepta. She has two. I think to myself, she could have gave one. If she had given one, we would have said, astonishing is this woman's gift to the church. She gave 50% of her income. Everybody standing up in here who's given 50% of your income, don't stand up. It would be astonishing. We would be absolutely amazed at the gift. She gave both of them. I will say, even as a pastor, this is deeply challenging to me. I very regularly will have conversations, confidentially, pastorally, over matters of giving. People with fair questions with regards to giving. You know, should we give tithe? Should we give more than the tithe? Should we tithe on our gross? Should we tithe on our, on our net? Um, I get money back from the government. I think I've already tithed on that. Should I tithe again? What should I? You know, all of these challenging questions, right? I think if you come to me with two lepta, I would have said keep one. I, I might have said wait till some more money comes in to give anything. I, I might have said that. I could have even potentially given some of you that advice. I apologize. This is a very challenging text. And I don't want to back off from the quality of what we're being asked to do here. I don't want to soft pedal it in any way. I don't want to nuance it or caveat it as you may be listening this morning. Well, he's going to get to that point in the text where he's going to kind of say, I don't really have to give everything to the Lord. Right? We're waiting for that. We're trusting you for that, Nate. Please come through. Right? Jesus commends what this woman did. And he leaves it there. What are we to do with this? It's very interesting, isn't it? It's the actually exact opposite of the story of the rich young ruler. Uh, the one who came to inherit eternal life, and he had all of the, the, these riches, and he was called to give them to the poor and then come follow Jesus, and he walks away sorrowful. Here we have a woman, not a man, not a ruler, a, a widow, not rich, poor, who gives all that she has and follows Jesus, so to speak. The exact opposite. You see, really, all of those questions earlier, and again, I don't mean to, I'm not intending to offend any more than this text might offend uh, any of us this morning, but questions like, should I, should I give from my tax refund, or should I, should I give from the gross or the net, or should I, you know, I got an inheritance, should, should any of it go to, to needs in the church, or mercy needs in our community, or whatever, those questions sometimes belie a spirit of a, a, a worry about not doing what is right. And the question underneath is sometimes, how much do I have to give to be good with the Lord? 
Or, this is the subtext, well, how little can I get away with giving and not be in sin? Anybody recognize that in your heart? Jesus does not entertain your question. He says the question is the problem. The question is the problem. He is calling you to more than such questions. We wonder why the Scripture doesn't spell out those kinds of things for us. Because the Scripture is not concerned about them. (laughs) It's concerned about so much more. The example put forth of this text of this woman places us in a very different conversation, a very, a much more costlier one. And I think in conclusion with this text, the challenge of what this text comes, we want to ask that question, how do we become the kind of givers who are like the widow in this text? How, how would we become the kind of people who give in proportion to the kind of sacrifice we see of the widow in this text? We should first ask ourselves, do we even want to be those kind of people? This text is raising that. Do you want to be the kind of person who's so free, you could have an empty account in trust with the Lord to be able to give to the needs of those who are around you and trust Him to provide your daily bread? Because obviously she believes that. Do you want to be that kind of person? And if you do, how would that kind of heart be cultivated within us? How would that happen? How do we get from where we are to there? Two things. We need to look at what it is that we've been given before we talk about what we are to give. We need to look at what it is that we've been given before we ever talk about what it is that we are to give. And this week, I was challenged by looking again at Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8. Listen to these words. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He owned everything. He had all the riches of heaven and earth at his disposal. He was God himself. There was no privilege. There was no status that was greater than him. There was no wealth that could in any way rival him. I mean, think of this in terms of the irony of this. I once heard Alistair Begg say this. I thought it was really helpful. He said, one of the ironies of being a parent is when your kids are young, you have to give them money in order to buy you a birthday gift, right? It's one of the oddities of being a parent. And then he said, that's what's happening in your life every day with the Heavenly Father. Every day with the Heavenly Father. Everything that you have is His. And He gives you money, a little bit of money, And he says, hey, give back to me. Notice he asks for his money back not because he needs it. (laughs) Your money is already his. Why does he ask you to give money back? Because you need it. Because he loves you. 
He wants your heart to be the kind of heart that's like his. That's what he wants. He asks for it back because he wants you to be like him. He doesn't need your money. <laughs> that's, that's silly. That's absolutely silly. He doesn't need your money. He doesn't need your resources. He doesn't need your gifts. He doesn't need your abilities. He's God. Don't forget that. So when we're asking these kinds of questions, we have to remember what it is that we've been given. And Jesus here took everything that he was and he's poured it into you. To use the language of 2 Corinthians, he who was rich became poor so that you who were poor could become rich. Now go and do likewise. Go and do likewise. We have to know what it is that we've been given. And once we know what it is we've been given, we can begin to understand what it is that we are to give. I love that section in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 as Paul is talking about the church in Macedonia. Listen to this. This is just remarkable. He says, he says this to the church at Corinth to encourage them. He says, I want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in the severe test of affliction... They have abundance of joy. That's the first thing. In the severe test of affliction, they have abundance of joy. Praise be to God. He said, I want you to see what's happening there. The grace of God is being revealed. Then he says this. And in their extreme poverty, it has overflowed with wealth and generosity on your part. In their extreme poverty, that's what Paul says. They dug deep and have given to you. With joy. Where did they get the resources to do that? Well, from a Savior who came under severe affliction, who tells us that for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. From the Savior who had all the possessions of, heavenly, of the heavenly places, became poor so that you and I could become rich. They got to know the Savior. And as they got to know the Savior, they knew what he had given to them. And they said to themselves, how could we not open up our billfolds and our purses and pour them out for the needs of the church at Corinth? Again, not a legalism, not a license, a gospel-motivated cheerfulness in their giving. The closer that we get to Christ the more our giving looks like the giving of Christ. How close are you to Jesus? How close are you to Him? How much of His heart is evidenced in you? That's what this text is asking. There's no guilt and shame in that. Only love and joy in that. Practically, I want to say just a couple of things as we close. And I think it's important to, to represent the people here and represent the, what the text is actually telling us in some sense. And that is, the reality is some of us in this room are non-givers. We don't give to the work of the Lord in any shape, form, or fashion. And maybe we've told ourselves certain narratives. We don't have the money. Not too much expense or whatever it may be. Don't know. All this text is telling you very simply is this. Start giving. Start giving. 
Please, please know I don't say that because I'm a pastor. You start, start loosening the strings on the things of this world to give to the eternal things where moth and rust will not destroy and thieves will not break in and steal. Start laying up treasures in heaven and start giving. And then this one really hit me. Those of us who give out of, their, out of your abundance, I have an abundance by any standard in any era of history. And I think I'm among friends in this room when I say that. This text would say, give until it costs. Give until it feels a little bit like a cross. Give until it costs. Not as a burden. As a joy. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. To say no to something that you like because you can say yes to the kingdom of God in another way. And here's what's challenging about this text. <laughs> to those who give and are giving unto sacrifice. You know what this text would say? <laughs> give more if you can. Do you see how challenging this text is? You go, well, I give 75%. She gave 100%. Jesus came in. I, I, don't, I, I don't know what to do with that other than just to tell you the truth. Well, you know what this means is that we can never, through our giving, be so indebted to God that he has to give certain things back to us. You will never outgive your Savior. Let that be a joy to you. Now, as best as the Lord would give you, through the grace provided to you, let's give like our Savior. As best as we can. And ask for the heart to do so. Father in heaven, I ask for that heart for all of us here in this room. So much, Lord, of our giving. I know my own giving is out of abundance. And the thought oftentimes of saying no to certain things that we enjoy in order to say yes to the things that really matter and are eternal is scary to us. It's painful to us. It feels like a cross to us. And it does because we don't have the joy of the Lord set before us. That the kingdom of God is not more beautiful to us than the kingdom of the world yet. The things which are unseen are not as real to us as the things which are seen. And so we pray for a spiritual work. The kind of spiritual work that we saw in the early church in Acts chapter 2. The kind of spiritual work we saw in Macedonia. Would you bring that work here? And not just here, but to all gospel preaching and believing churches. That the Holy Spirit would sweep through us. And that a testimony in a time that will not hear the gospel in word might be confronted by the power of the gospel indeed. And might not have an explanation for the kind of radical generosity that has overtaken God's people in our time. Lord, let our giving be a witness to the gospel. Lord, hear this prayer and work in our hearts, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.